Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 21. And we'll be looking uh, at uh, the Apostle Paul as he finally now at the end of the third missionary journey is going to be entering the city of Jerusalem. And uh, he's got a lot that is waiting ahead of him. And it's not all good in a certain perspective. But uh, we're going to look at this passage this morning. Acts chapter 21. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. And I'll read down through verse 26. And this is actually a very controversial passage in the book of Acts. So we're going to kind of chew on this a little bit uh, together this morning. As I uh, read for you, I remind you I'm reading the inspired Word of God. So please listen with reverence to the Word of Scripture, starting in Acts 21 and verse 15. After these days, we got ready and started our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples came from Caesarea, also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And following the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from what is strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 27 so you can kind of see what's coming. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing Him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and they laid hands on Him. And they're going to bind Him, drag Him out of the temple, slam shut the doors, and they're going to start beating Him to a pulp. So this is, this is what's lying ahead of us. But uh, may God bless the reading of His, of His Word. As we look at this, uh, this passage, we need to start out, and I want to kind of uh, start in verse 17 where He arrives in Jerusalem. And notice in verse 17, the brethren received us gladly. And then in verse 18, and the following day, Paul went in with us. Luke, the author of Acts, is included in this. And they went, he went with us to James and all the elders were present. Now it's interesting, by this time at the church of Jerusalem, you have James. This is not the Apostle James. He's already been put to death back in chapter 12. So this is James, the half-brother of the Lord who had been converted, had seen the risen Lord, and was now a leader within the church at Jerusalem. 
Now notice also, it's James and all the elders. Where are the rest of the apostles? They probably have left Jerusalem by this time. They're out preaching. They're engaging in ministry. So what's left in the mother church, if we speak of it that way, is James, a half-brother of our Lord, who is a leader in the church, and the elders. They have already established elders, a plurality of elders, as the leadership of the church. The apostles, again, uh, are, are gone. There was a persecution earlier. They probably scattered and they're out doing ministry of various sorts. Uh, but uh, it's probably at this time that Paul brings this tremendous financial gift that he had been collecting from all the predominantly Gentile churches in, in Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. And they brought this big contribution to help the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. That's probably been given by this time, although Luke doesn't record it, but it certainly was one of the major reasons Paul came to Jerusalem. And now starting in verse uh, 20, we find that, uh, excuse me, verse 19, he begins to give a report on what God had done through his ministry. So in verse 19 it says, and he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So it had been roughly about five years since Paul had been in Jerusalem. He came here at the end of his second missionary journey. Now he's at the end of the third missionary journey. And he's probably just walking through all the cities and just telling all the incredible things that God was doing and saving these Gentiles and bringing them into the church. And so what Luke is emphasizing is that one by one. I mean, this is a, a testimony, a missions report uh, that I would have loved to have been there. One by one, he begins to walk through all the cities that he visited. And he re- Remember, he spent three years at Ephesus and all the, the amazing conversions and the big book burning where, you know, probably a million dollars worth of books and magic supplies were burnt up by the new converts because their hearts had been changed and, and all of the miracles of healing and exorcisms throughout that third missionary journey. And even the falling out of the window of Eutychus who who was picked up dead, and the resurrection. And Paul probably, his eyes were bright as he was telling what what God had done. And notice the emphasis here in verse 19. He was telling all the things that God had done. This is not, look at me, aren't I great? I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. Look Look at how wonderful I am. No, it's look at what God has done. And even when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he said, you know, I planted Apollos water, but it was God that caused the growth. God changed the hearts. God gave the repentance and faith. God was doing it all. So he was just uh, delighting and glorying in what God had accomplished. Their response in verse 20 is when they heard this, they began glorifying God. I mean, they rejoiced in the gospel of the grace of God that Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone. That's the only way a sinner can be saved. You can't add works to it. You can't add your own righteousness to it. You have none. The Bible says we're all, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. We need a Savior. We cannot contribute anything but our sin. Christ died to save us from our sins. So they're, they're, they're glorifying God. They're rejoicing in it. They agree on the gospel of the grace of God. And they thank God for harvesting all of these sinners out of the Gentiles and bringing them into the church. But immediately, the conversation shifts in verse 20. They say, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles through all of these out in the dispersion, out in Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia. You're teaching all the Jews that live out there among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs 
what is to be done. So immediately they launch in to their, their concern. Now notice uh, they, they speak of thousands in verse 20. Thousands of these Jews. And uh, really in the Greek this is tens of thousands. So a huge number of Jews. And notice he says that they, have, they are believers in verse 20. They have believed... So they have come to understand the gospel of Christ. So now they're believers according to their testimony. But they're also zealous for the law, verse 20. They're very zealous for the law. The law was still important to them. Not for salvation. We have to assume they understand that the law will not save them. Circumcision will not save them. None of these things will save them. We have to assume they understand that. They're called believers here by the elders of the church, by James in Jerusalem. They're believers, but they're still all zealous for the law. And then in verse 21, they report, look, they've heard some fake news about you, Paul. They have been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews, all the cities you went to, you've been teaching all the Jews to forsake Moses don't need to circumcise your children. Don't need to walk according to the customs. The ceremonial law. Now these were unfounded rumors that, that they were hearing. Probably from some of the Jews who never did become Christians. Who came to Jerusalem for these feast days. And so they're spreading all these false rumors about Paul. And these Christian Jews who are zealous for the law are hearing that. And they're confused. They don't understand. Now again, I say this is all uh, basically fake news because Paul wasn't really teaching all of that the way the, the report seems to be indicating. Paul was not out teaching all the Jews that they had to immediately forsake everything from their heritage. Now he was adamantly clear again Moses cannot save you. Circumcision cannot save you. The customs, the ceremonial law cannot save you. And we have to assume that they understood that. In their zeal for the law, we have to assume. If they didn't understand that, then they're all lost. And this is a whole different context. We have to assume that they understood that Jesus Christ and faith in Him alone is what saves So all of these reports about Paul were really a distortion of what he taught. Now he taught the Gentiles, you're not under the law. You have the moral law of God to live by, but you're not under the ceremonial law. There's no point in, in trying to keep that. That's, you're not under the law. You're under grace. The moral law of God continues from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, but none of the ceremonial law, the worship principle, or, or the, the sacrifice, none of that, you, you don't have to do any of that. He was very clear with the Gentiles. But for the Jews who grew up and were steeped in that heritage, it became a matter of a freedom of conscience, I assume. So James and the elders believe that these reports about Paul were ultimately uh, faults. If you look down, for example, at verse 24, jumping ahead just for a moment, when they come up with their plan for Paul to, to carry out, they say, take these four men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you. So they, I'm assuming they consider all that to be fake news about the Apostle Paul. So then we go to the plan, starting in verse 22. What's to be done? Because all these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem have heard that basically you're trashing their heritage. That they need to immediately forsake all of that. And what are we supposed to do? We all understand it's not for salvation, but what are we supposed to do? So they propose a plan in verse 22 because 
these Jews, Jewish believers who have been kind of bought in to these false rumors about you're going to hear that you've come into town and your name is mud right now and it's not going to go well for you because they don't understand. So we have four men, verse 23, who are under a vow. So Paul, take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and then everyone will know that you, you're still practicing some of these Jewish customs. And that will calm them down. Now, this proposed plan, we assume that the vow that they're talking about here in verse 23 is a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow, you can go read about it in number 6. But uh, basically, uh, the Nazarite vow, if you took a Nazarite vow, you would uh, set apart a period of time when you, ab- you would abstain from all grape products. No wine, no vinegar, no grape juice. Can't eat a fresh grape. Can't eat the skin. Can't eat the seeds. No grape products at all. Don't cut your hair. That's part of the Nazarite vow. Samson was under the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist probably. And you stay away from the dead. Those were the requirements. So at the end of that period that you fulfill those terms, then you come to the temple and you offer three sacrifices. You cut your hair and then you offer all that up with a grain offering and a, and a liquid Offering as well. So that's going to be part of the mix. This is part of the controversy of the passage that we're going to get into in just a second. Now I'm assuming that James and the elders of the church in proposing this plan to Paul assume that this is an issue of Christian liberty. Particularly because of the sacrifices. One of them is a sin offering or a sin sacrifice. I'm assuming that they see it as a matter of Christian liberty. Again, if they're going to go to the temple and offer an animal sacrifice as a sin offering, thinking that atonement of sins comes through that animal, then they've lost the gospel. This is an entirely different thing. But we're assuming the elders of the church, James, call them believers. Even though they're zealous for the law, they're believers. So we're going to assume that they understand that those animals... The blood of those animals cannot take away your sin. Okay? Only the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We're assuming that. In verse 25, they say, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, and now he's referring back to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 when they dealt with the whole issue of what must Gentiles do to be saved. The Pharisees said, well, they got to... Believe in Jesus Christ and be circumcised. You gotta do that. And the council emphatically concluded, no. Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They don't have to abide by any of this, these customs of the Jews, these, these old covenant laws when it comes to the ceremonial law. They don't have to do any of that. They just need to be sensitive to the moral law. Don't engage in any sexual sin. And also be sensitive to their Jewish brethren. So abstain from blood and sacrifices to idols and things that are strangled. More of an issue of being sensitive to the unity within the body of Christ, I think. But the Gentiles, this doesn't apply to Gentiles, only to Jewish believers. And then we come to verse 26 and... Paul, Paul agrees to, to, uh, to do their plan. Verse 26. He took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, he went into the temple, giving notice of the, of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So basically the way this would work for his part, he didn't take the vow sacrifices, he's not participating in them. He's paying for the sacrifices of these four men. He's not actually doing it himself. But there's a seven-day purification period that he has to 
comply with. Those were the Jewish customs. And so verse 26 is about those those days. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, that was a time of purification. So just a little background on that. But he agrees to the plan. Now this is where the uh, the controversy comes in. There's two views of Paul's actions here. One of them, and this is challenging, because you know, I read about a dozen commentaries on this, and uh, and they are divided. Probably about Nine to three. The three, some of them are good Reformed brethren. They're on both sides, by the way. But they say that what Paul did in agreeing to this plan was a sinful compromise of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce holds that view. Uh, Derek Thomas, another good Reformed commentator. And I... Respect these men. They have taught me much. They are great men. And they believe that Paul was absolutely wrong in submitting to this plan. They are adamant that he blew it big time. And the main problem, they say, is those animal sacrifices. So at the end, these four men, once they completed their vow, and it's time for them to consummate it, and bring it to an end, they had to bring three animal sacrifices to the temple. One was a burnt offering, one was a sin offering, and one was a peace offering. And they offer those animals, then they cut their hair, and they burn their hair under the peace offering animal sacrifice. And the opinion of these brothers are that this is absolutely a denial of the cross of Christ. How could the Apostle Paul pay for these four brothers to consummate their vow when they have to bring a sin sacrifice to the temple when Jesus Christ has already shed His blood on Calvary's cross and you can add nothing to the blood of Christ. Nothing. And Paul is caving into the pressure And he's guilty of compromising the Gospel. And he knows better. I mean, read his writings. He knows that the blood of goats and bulls can't take away your sin. He knows that the blood of Christ is totally sufficient to wash away our sins when we put faith and trust in Him alone. So that's one of the ways that they interpret Paul here. Here's this great godly man, this apostle, and because we all can identify in ways because we all struggle with sin, but he fell on his face and he blew it to his own disgrace and horror because he denied the gospel. Now there let me let me kind of <clears throat> rebut that a little bit. If Paul is guilty of denying the gospel so also is James. So also are the elders of the church. So also are these four Christian brothers. In other words, the whole church is apostate. Right? Because they're the ones that came up with the plan. Paul's just agreeing to their plan. So if Paul is guilty of denying the Gospel, then the whole church is guilty. And yet you don't get that sense from the book of Acts that the whole Jerusalem church is an apostate church and they've compromised on the Gospel of Christ. So that's an issue. It's also hard for me to believe that the man who wrote Galatians and the man who wrote Romans would so easily deny it all here when he's standing up for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That all of the Old Testament sacrifices were types and figures that pointed forward and are fulfilled in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's hard for me to see that He can so quickly just abandon all that. Now, we as we believers, we're still sinners, right? I mean, we're capable of some bad stuff. I mean, David, you know, adultery, murder... But I don't know. I just don't see that in the Apostle Paul. I could be wrong. Also, 
as another response to this, Paul did not think that he compromised the Gospel. Uh, After his arrest, he's going to be arrested as we begin to read here in the next section. He's going to testify of his conversion to the Jewish crowd that when, uh, when, when God appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he entered into Damascus and Ananias came and the Lord had told Ananias that uh, get up to, to Paul, get up, be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. So Paul just within a, a few moments of, of being arrested is going to testify, no, you wash away your sins by calling upon the name of Jesus Christ. Doesn't sound like there's any compromise of the gospel there. Uh, later on in Acts 23, when he now he's going to be brought before the the Sanhedrin of uh, there in Jerusalem at the temple, he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the council of the Jews, and he says to them, "Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day." Acts 23 verse one. Now, if he had just committed an atrocious sin of compromising the gospel, he certainly wasn't aware of it. He says, I've lived up to this very day with a perfectly good conscience before God. So, he didn't think that he compromised the gospel. And again, if he had just committed the most heinous sin of doing that, I would think he would feel a little bit of guilt and remorse, but he certainly doesn't show any. Later on that night, after the commander had to rescue him from the council, because they were starting to revolt and ride, and he was the commander was, was fearful of, of Paul's life, he removed him to the barracks, and Jesus appeared to him, stood at his side, in Acts 23, verse 11. And this is what Jesus said to Paul. He said, Take courage, as you have solemnly witnessed to My cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Doesn't sound like Jesus is reprimanding him for compromising the Gospel. So I don't think Paul thought that he compromised the Gospel. Jesus apparently didn't think that he compromised the gospel. He said, "You have solemnly witnessed to my cause at the here at Jerusalem." How could Jesus have said that if he had just compromised the gospel by paying for these sin sacrifices to be made? Interesting. And again, leading up to his time in Jerusalem, I don't think Paul could so quickly deny his earlier convictions. For example, back in Acts 20, verse 24, he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That was his whole commitment in going to Jerusalem. So now you're saying you just, and then you just flip-flop like a fish out of water? On one side and now on the other, when his heart's passion was to be faithful to the ministry and to testify the gospel of the grace of God, that he would so quickly deny the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ, as being the only thing that can save a sinner from our sin. Then I don't know. And then in, in Acts twenty one, verse thirteen. He says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Because they're telling him, the prophets are telling Paul, you go to Jerusalem and bonds and afflictions await you. And he says, what are you weeping and breaking my heart for? I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. That heart exhibits a tremendous strength of grace to stand for the Lord. And yet, we're being told that he, he just totally laid down and denied the Gospel. So those are some things you have to take into consideration. So that's that's one interpretation. He's compromised the gospel sinfully. The other way to interpret all this, and this has its challenges as well, 
but that Paul and James and the elders of the church and the four brethren that are taking the vow all see this as an issue of Christian liberty. And nine of the twelve commentators I read will will fall out on this this view in one way or another. John Gill and John Calvin, for example, said that Paul didn't agree to this plan to pay for those sacrifices or for the cutting of the hair, the consummating of the vow, in any way thinking he was bound to do this by the law of God. But rather to satisfy weak minds and to remove their prejudices so as to increase the opportunity to minister to them. In other words, Paul and accommodated the weakness of the Christian Jews who were still too much attached to the culture, the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant. But he accommodated himself to them with the hope of helping them to understand more deeply the the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. The Gospel. Use it as a teaching opportunity. In other places, Paul talks about you have strong believers and you have weak believers in the church. Strong believers have a better grasp on Christian liberty than weak believers. Weak believers, if you read Romans 14, if you read 1 Corinthians 8, weak believers say, don't touch, don't eat. Don't eat this bread. Don't eat that meat sacrificed to idols because it came from pagan roots. And the strong believer said, no, I can eat it in the freedom of Christ. God made that meat. And there are times when strong believers need to accommodate the weaknesses of the brethren. Matthew Henry, for example, said for these Jewish believers, they were not trying to be justified by the law of God. They're not trying to have their sins atoned through these animal sacrifices. They know that can only be done through Jesus Christ. But the ceremonial law for these Jews, particularly those that live in Jerusalem or Judea, was so much a part of their worship for decades, for centuries. And even though the ceremonial law was dead, it was not buried. It was dead, but not yet deadly, according to Matthew Henry. In other words, they still had the freedom to participate in it as long as they understood it did not impact their salvation at all. But they had been steeped up in these things and they were surrounded by these things. The temple was there. And in their Christian minds, they still thought that it was an aid to their uh, serving and, and following and loving the Lord Jesus. Even though they understood the Gospel, they understood these sacrifices were not taking away their sin, but they were a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And according to Matthew, Henry, and Gill, and Calvin, Paul just sees the weakness of their faith, but he accommodates it to them. It was a great weakness and a mistake to be so fond of the shadows of the law when the substance had already come in Jesus Christ. But it took the Jewish church longer to come out of the shadows into the full light of Christian freedom and liberty. And that's kind of the issue that this second interpretation falls out on. Now consider something else. I want you to turn in your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 because we need to consider also with all of this Paul's personal strategy in doing evangelism. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now all of this is controversial and that's why the even reform commentators don't agree on this stuff. So it's, um, I'm just trying to explain it the best I can and, and uh, tell you what I think is probably the best understanding, though it has problems as well. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. 
This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. Okay, so this is his strategy for evangelism. Verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I may win Jews. To those who are under the law, that's the Jews again, as under the law, though not myself uh, being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. So in other words, what he's saying here, to the Jews, that's okay, I accommodate myself to their upbringing, to their culture, because I want to win them for Christ. I want to see, I want to teach them how they need to look at the law that it points to Christ. At the end of the law, for righteousness is Christ. But that's okay. I'll, I'll accommodate them. So again, in verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law. He understood his freedom and liberty in Christ. But he went under the law so that I may win those who are under the law. So he's willing to accommodate. Because he said in his mind, if I don't do it, then then they're going to throw all these objections up to me. I want to remove the objections so I can deal with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law. Now he's talking about Gentiles. To those who are without law, as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. It was all about getting the Gospel. He was willing to accommodate the culture, the lifestyle, to to a degree, so that he could communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now a great example of this is Hudson Taylor, by the way. A young man who went to China as a missionary. When he first arrived there, he wore that long traditional black coat that Englishmen would wear. And all the the Chinese people looked at him and called him the black devil. Because he was dressed up in a black coat. And they, that's not a part of their, their culture at all. So Hudson Taylor realized that to be a more effective evangelist, he needed to adopt the full Chinese dress. And that included a traditional Manchu queue, that long braid of hair on the back of the head with a shaved forehead, as a courtesy to his host country. And as a means he, he, he wished and hoped would open up doors for the gospel. And you know what the other Christians thought of him in doing that? Scandal. Look at Hudson Taylor. He's compromised the gospel. Look at the way he's dressing. No, he's just trying to live out Paul's commitment so that he can better bring the gospel to those and not let the cultural things become the issue or the burden, or the barrier. Also, when you look at Paul's motive on doing all this, you know, why did Paul come to Jerusalem in the first place? Well, he wanted to come to bring this huge financial gift with him from the predominantly Gentile churches in Galatia and Macedonia and Achaia that's where Thessalonians and Corinth and, and uh, Philippi, all those churches. He wanted to bring this money gift to let those Jewish brothers know that the Gentile brothers love them. They care for them. They, they're one. To emphasize the unity of the body of Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile within, within the body of Christ. They wanted to emphasize that. This is the very heart of Christ in His high priestly prayer in John 17 that, that they might be one. So unity was one of His motivations for coming. Secondly, He wanted to proclaim the Gospel. That was certainly on His heart and mind. 
But thirdly, in coming to Jerusalem, he came wanting to bring the gospel to the unbelievers, to encourage the believers, because he loved his fellow countrymen. He loved his fellow Jews. He wanted them to come to faith in Christ. In Romans 10 verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He's talking about other Jews. He says back in Romans 9, I'm not lying, I'm telling the truth. The Spirit of God bears witness that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I wish I could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He loved his fellow countrymen. So all of that I think is, is part of the motivation for why he's coming and doing what he's doing. Now some have questioned his, the wisdom of what he did in paying for these animal sacrifices. F.F. Bruce, another New Testament scholar, says that Paul's decision to be involved in the consummating of these vows and paying for the animal sacrifices may not have been wise, but he cannot be fairly accused of compromising the gospel. It certainly didn't turn out the way they planned. We really don't know how the Christian Jews responded to Paul's efforts. I'm assuming it, it helped there. The main Opposition is going to come from the unbelieving Jews in the temple. But we'll get into that another time. But it, So it, it didn't turn out exactly the way the elders and James and Paul had, had wanted it to turn out, but it certainly turned out exactly according to God's plan, according to the earlier prophecies. For from city to city, the, the Spirit of God raised up prophets to tell Paul that when you get to Jerusalem, bonds and afflictions await you. And this is part of the means that brought about the fulfillment of that prophecy. Well, let me uh, wrap this up with a couple of applications. One of them, this does raise a question of Christian liberty. That these Jewish believers, how can they engage in a vow that requires at the end of it them bringing an animal sacrifice to the temple, one of them being a sin offering, a sin sacrifice. How can a believer do that? It raises that legitimate question. And it's a troubling question. The only way I think they could have possibly have done that in good faith, they by understanding the Gospel, they realized that Christ fulfilled these sacrificial animal sacrifices. They were types that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. But because they're steeped in them, now with a different attitude towards them, they're, not, they're no longer to make an atonement for sin, but they're there to, because I've, I've grown up in that, but now I see that, that Christ fulfilled them. And maybe in their minds, they justify being able to offer that, not in any way relying on atonement from the animal blood, but seeing the beauty and the suffering of Christ for, and the death of Christ for their sins, that possibly they could have, have done it in that spirit. Now this is where the commentators struggle with this, whether that's, that could be done. If they viewed it as a matter of mere Christian liberty, then possibly so. Yet, of course, some are going to accuse them forsaking, forsaking the gospel and doing it. I think that without totally resolving that tension, I think it raises the issue that believers do differ on secondary issues. And these issues can create division in the church if they're not understood accordingly. Issues of Christian liberty can become contentious. Because sometimes we make our, our issues which are secondary close to primary issues where everything is black and white and there's no gray. Well, in the area of Christian liberty, I assure you there are gray areas. But when we begin to accuse and judge another brother in an area of Christian liberty and we accuse them of sin or whatever it may be, 
then that becomes an issue in and of itself. As Paul teaches us, sometimes love needs to accommodate the weakness of the brethren with a, with a weaker faith. That have scruples in areas that they, that they almost make uh, a matter of righteousness and sin, which are not that way. So I think it just challenges us to think carefully through Christian liberty and our attitude towards brethren who differ in areas of secondary matters, of Christian liberty issues, and be willing to understand and not let it create division within the church. Somehow that's a part of this uh, in one way or another. The last observation, application, is that when I, when I look at this from kind of flying over it, at maybe 30,000 feet, I see the Apostle Paul as a man who had a passion for God's glory and the salvation of sinners and that he was willing to run risks in making a decision that may appear to other people is unwise or inappropriate or even some may even say sinful. I think he was a man who was willing to run risk for the sake of the gospel and advancing the kingdom of God. I think Paul, you know, did this. He agreed to pay the expenses for these four brothers, hoping that it would help resolve the misunderstanding within the church about what he taught to the Jews and, and what he didn't teach. And he also hoped it would open the doors for the gospel. I don't know how it re- if it resolved the misunderstanding with the other believers, but it did open a door for the gospel, even though he was arrested and he was beaten up. It did open doors for the gospel. But he was a risk taker because his heart was always in pressing the boundaries of the kingdom of God. Every time Paul stepped into a synagogue, he was taking a risk. How would they respond? Would they believe? Would they repent and trust Christ alone? Or would they get angry? Would they try to drag me out and stone me? Would they stir up the civil authorities to come and arrest me and beat me? Every time he entered into a synagogue, he was taking a personal risk. When he rented the school of Tyrannus and took the risk of publicly debating the issues of idolatry and the worldviews in Ephesus, he was taking a big risk. Would they respect the differences? Or would they eventually create a riot and try to, try to beat me up? Which they did later on. And he had to be skirted out of town, you remember, at Ephesus when a big riot uh, grew up within the, at the theater. When he, when he wanted to raise this big pile of cash and bring it to Jerusalem, he was taking a huge risk with God's money. Because the potential of being robbed or people finding out they're carrying a bunch of money and it all being stolen and maybe beaten up. I mean, that was a risk to do that. But his love for the church, his desire to go there and minister to them made him take the risk. In every missionary journey, Paul took risks with his health, his ability to work, to minister, risks with his well-being, his life. And even in going to the temple here and paying the expenses for the four brothers, he took a risk. Would they understand his motives? Would he be able to bring them into a deeper understanding of Christian liberty? Would he be able to proclaim the Gospel? All of that's uncertain. I think he took a risk. I think the challenge here is that we all have a different tolerance for risk in different areas of life. That just goes with it. We're all different. It's certainly far safer not to take risks, to keep the status quo, to stay in a safe zone, shielded from possible dangers or challenges, keep our heads down, avoid the controversy, not stir up rejection or criticism. But Paul was a man gifted by God, empowered by God, to push the boundaries of the Gospel, which meant he put himself into dangerous areas. He was okay with that. That was his calling. But he challenges us with the great commission that we're to go out and make disciples of all nations, 
to preach the gospel. And it's a whole lot easier to stay in the safe zone. But Paul challenges us to get out and proclaim the gospel and to press the kingdom out in the world of darkness. I think in serving Christ, we're all challenged at times to get out of our comfort zone. William Carey, the great English particular Baptist, believed that the Great Commission applied to all Christians at all times. And he chided his fellow believers of his day for ignoring the Great Commission. Well, other people do that. I don't have to be involved in Great Commission. He chided them. In 1792, he organized a missionary society, China Inland Mission, and at its inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon. Uh, I think he was in India, wasn't he? William Carey was in India. Said China should be uh, India. And in his inaugural meeting, he preached a sermon with this call. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And he, like Paul, was willing to take risks to risk this world for the world to come, to sacrifice, to take up the cross so that the Gospel can spread and the kingdom can increase. And within a year, he was on a ship headed for India. Took a big risk. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul. Whether he was right or wrong in doing what he did, I think his motives were genuine. I think he wanted to do it for the glory of Christ, for the Gospel, the spread of the Gospel. And he challenges us. What are you doing for the Gospel of Jesus Christ? What are you doing to try to get the Gospel and there's only one which has the power to save sinners that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who are righteous again. We need to be forgiven. We need to be saved. And we cannot contribute anything to that. We are sinners who deserve the wrath of God. The only good news is that God in His grace and love has sent His only begotten Son to come down and to live a sinless life so that He could take our place on the cross and, 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 and be our substitute and bear our sins and suffer the wrath of God for our sins. And the good news is, sinner, if you repent and believe in Christ, He will forgive you of all of your sins. He will set your feet on the path of glory. But you must come and trust in Him and Him only. May God give us boldness and courage to share the Gospel with those around us. May we have a passion for the Gospel and be willing to sacrifice and be sacrificed for it that others might come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior.